but our paradigms are changing. It's not gone unnoticed. Some people call it a fourth industrial revolution. There are other names for it, but we appear to be in a transformative moment. Where are we prepared for this? Where are we not prepared? What do we need to develop? Who do we need to network with? And all of those are entirely within the capability of the Army. Welcome to The Convergence, the Army's Mad Scientist podcast. I'm Matt Sanisbert of the Combat Capabilities Development Command's Armament Center within Army Futures Command, and I'll be joined in just a moment by Luke Shabro, Deputy Director of Mad Scientist. Mad Scientist is a U.S. Army initiative that continually explores the future of warfare, challenges assumptions, and collaborates with academia, industry, and government. You can connect with us through Twitter, at ArmyMadSci, or subscribe to the blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. On today's episode, we'll be talking with Dr. Amy Zalman. Dr. Zalman is a futurist, former CEO and president of the World Future Society, and founder of Prescient LLC. She'll be talking with us today about strategic foresight, how to craft a vision of the future, and the importance of narrative. As always, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or Training and Doctrine Command. Let's get started. Thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure. Dr. Zalman, you've been a futurist for over 15 years, and you were actually president of the World Future Society um, and, and been involved in all these various organizations uh, and really teaching organizations now. So how did you get into such an interesting field and career? Like a lot of futurists, the path was actually accidental. But when I think back, there are two major events for me that made this a really compelling com- career. One was uh, in my role as the chair of information integration at the National War College starting in 2012. And while I was there, I got a great education myself in the way in which senior military colleges or institutions continue to teach strategy and continue to teach what lies around strategy. And it was clearly useful. I mean, it's very good to know the history of ways, ends, and means, um, but not sufficient for a really complex world. And so I became very interested myself in emergent ideas about strategy. And I think that strategic foresight, although it is not the implementation of a strategy, is a way of thinking and doing strategy that is appropriate for our moment. And then the other reason is very personal. My grandmother and grandparents came to the United States um, on the last boat to leave Italy in 1940. Um, in the middle of a war, and by her own account, she uh, persuaded an American consul that they should get a visa despite being, you know, not wealthy and so forth, and sort of talked herself into being an American. She said, we want to go there and pay taxes and so forth. And that, to me, is a great example of how to think like a futurist. If you can tell a compelling story that engages somebody else in a shared aspiration like the American dream, then you have a very much higher probability of having it happen. And so I take that with me in my work as a futurist and share it with others because I think it's a good formula. I think that's such a, an inspiring and intriguing way of coming into futures, you know, what, what inspires you. And 
So you've, you've done this for a period of time now, which is in over 15 years is quite a long time for futures and considering what's happened over the last five to six years, even in terms of technological disruption and the way we've changed as a society. So over that period of time, really, you know, your, your whole job is looking at foresight and, and figuring these things out. But what surprised you during that period? The point of foresight, in some sense, is to remain unsurprised. And so I'm going to try to stick with that. But I will say something in a, in a different vein, which is that I didn't start my career. I mean, I was a graduate student, potentially going into academia or something else. I didn't start working inside of large companies or large um, institutions or with the military or the government. And what has surprised me is the resilience, not in a good way, of bureaucracies that have been traditionally successful to true transformation, to change. It is so powerful, um, and it is very thought-provoking for me. So I would say that surprises me. I think kind of following that vein, actually, brings me to really my next question. So um, through your your company, Prescient LLC, I know you've worked with a large amount of organizations on futures workshops and forecasting um, and really preparing those those organizations for the future. So through that, what's been the most significant features of future-proof or future-ready organizations and companies? How, how would you describe those companies? In two or three ways. The first has to be a readiness to look at themselves. So um, it is gripping, compelling, horrifying in a way that makes us not want to turn away or fascinating and exciting in the same way to look at the external world. We're surrounded by incredible things happening in technology and climate and so forth. But having looked at that external world, is a company, is an organization then ready to turn its lens on itself and say, okay, in order to be ready, in order not only to be ready, in order to be proactive in this world, how do we need to change internally? And I would say that that is a very challenging space to be for an individual. And it is extremely challenging for uh, an organization. And the bigger they get, of course, or the older they are, the harder that can be. But it's a, it's a point of a mark of success. So speaking of an organization that is older um, and several hundred years old and very large, how does the Army, how can the Army hope to achieve that? Is it, is it just that self-reflection? You know, Army, Army Futures Command came about due to a realization of how we had to start adapting the ways we do business um, to modernize the force. But is it, is it just self-reflection or what else does a large, huge, and in a lot of ways, bureaucratic organization like the Army, what, how can they future-proof themselves? I didn't mean to say that self-reflection is in any way sufficient for transformation. Once you've reflected, it's important to act. How will an organization not just change the way it talks, but actually begin to dig into its processes and the way it works in order to accommodate the external world? So I'm about to become your least popular podcast ever. I appreciate Futures Command, and I very much appreciate the fact that the modern U.S. military has always done futures work um, since the 70s um, in a big way. But our paradigms are changing 
um, it's not gone unnoticed. Some people call it a fourth industrial revolution. There are other names for it. But we appear to be in a transformative moment, which means that even the paradigm of the army itself may change. And I think that is so mind-boggling um, that it, it's sort of unthinkable. Um, and there is nothing, very little, I would say, um, that is mainstream in the Army right now that is, that is prepared to think about what the Army might look like, what the role of a military is as, the, as governments themselves change and as the Westphalian order changes. Um, and so they have a bit, as a big organization and a powerful one, they have very big questions to answer. So that's the, the I'm not sure that that even returns to the question that you asked anymore. You'll find out. But I, I think that's an important point of having to understand where you fit in the world, right? That's, that's a piece of being a futurist is understanding how these organizations or how these entities, what do they even look like in the future? So I think um, about... About four years ago, General Milley, who's now the um, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, um, had a briefing on looking at you know various army units and what size they were and what composition. He said, you know, I don't I don't even know if we're going to have a battalion in 2030. I don't even know what what the army looks like. So let's start asking questions about that. So I think I think that's an important point. Well, for the for the army in particular, I think it's very challenging. So. I would have to go back and actually confirm this, but I believe that it was at a mad scientist event, and I believe that it was General Milley, who I asked a few years ago, what is the proportion of war fighting that the military has done as compared to the amount of disaster relief and other, and other work that it has done in the past year? Is that located in a place? And others later told me, you know, you could put it together from various reports, but of course it's not. But the point of the question was, so the discourse and the narrative is about, is about, of course, war and perhaps now competition or other versions, right, of variants of what the military has historically done. Is that actually what it is doing most of the time? And it would be, appear to be beyond character changing to think, wow, we are an organization whose primary activity, or one of its primary activities, not an adjunct activity, is actually defense in a very different realm. Traditional means do not defend against the versions of threats that we now have. I, th I think that's really an interesting concept, the idea that defense in a very different paradigm, not defense in the traditional deterrence and armed conflict um, or even peacekeeping uh, in the traditional sense, but rather uh, a more holistic uh, approach in terms of defense. There's a lot of concern right now that shouldn't have been probably, but in a way we've been taken surprised by COVID-19 and, and the effects it's had, second and third order effects as well, on uh, travel, economy, um, all, all sorts of issues, including defense in terms of what's having to be done at military installations and, and things like that. You, you talked earlier about this, so I want to I want to kind of pull this thread a little bit. You talked about avoiding surprise, so that's that's the whole point behind the the forecasting and and figuring out the future. So, what kind of steps? What are some actual concrete steps that we can take? And I say we as as the army can take to avoid strategic surprise. I think all of the ideas exist inside the army now about what could happen. 
um, COVID-19 or something like it, right? A, a global pandemic has been thought about for 15 or 20 years, and it's visible in publications from the intelligence community and elsewhere. So it didn't really surprise the world. So why does it seem surprising? There are two reasons. One is that ideas like this are not taken seriously. They do not find their way into institutional planning. That's it. So the fun part is done. Let's imagine all the things that could happen. And especially let's imagine all the threats that we could let, all the bad stuff that could happen. So similar to what you said earlier, which is, you know, the, it's not just the recognizing, it's doing something about it. Yeah. So I don't mean to, um, I care so much about this, but, you know, it's really easy to stop at the kind of titillating fun of this and then say, okay. What would we need to do to prepare? And probably a plan on a shelf is not enough. We need to have, so who has been successful? There's apparently no country has been very well prepared for a global pandemic, but the, the, the kinds of institutional actions that have been um, in different countries are a good guidebook for, for other things as well. One of them is developing strong networks and um, having coordinated responses. So the army is very good at that. Um, but maybe it's not good at it in all of the contexts which are now faced, right? So it's good at it in the face of a human adversary. Another is actually the true incorporation of strategic foresight processes into strategy planning. So um, this puts activities at the center of strategic planning, not as kind of a conference on the edge. It says, we really monitor signals. We don't just monitor the ones we want to from Russia and China. We monitor a wide range holistically of what could happen in the world. We engage and permit people to say things that frighten us. I have had young military professionals tell me that they really don't feel good speaking up and speaking imaginatively in meetings because they may be in a meeting with their future boss. That is bad karma in a big way. So, so that there's a serious culture of letting people say things that aren't going to happen, of letting people say things in a wide range of spaces, um, not only what threatens them, but just sort of what's happening. What do we see in the world? Um, and then in a structured and rigorous way, and this is the for various foresight practices, not simply developing scenarios, but taking them to the next level and asking, where are we prepared for this? Where are we not prepared? What do we need to develop? Who do we need to network with? And all of those are entirely within the capability of the Army, but it doesn't use them on ideas and paradigms that are not within its traditional realms of activity, Right. in my view. Absolutely. So it, it kind of gets me to, and maybe you've already answered this in a sense, but um, being that you see this wide scope out there, what, what is the Army missing right now? What is the DOD not paying enough attention to? A couple of things. Um, the one that I think about a lot is the rise of individual power. In some ways, you might say, well, of course we do. We think all the time about you know, the individual with the drone. It is perpetually um, you know, interesting and alarming to think about the, the single person or the very small group with, um, with a nuclear device. So that's been thought for a very long time. But there are other ways in which the ability of individuals to act in a, in a variety of spaces beyond this violent 
threat should be meaningful to the military. One is in the space of conventional war. So when considering the Russia or China big war, individuals are still going to be there. They're going to be there with their cameras. They're going to be there with their smartphones. They're going to be there with their drones. They're going to be there with their networks, global networks, and so forth. Um, So individuals don't disappear just because thinking has turned from the non-state actors of the earlier part of the century. Um, And then there are other places that are interesting as well. So people now want to be a part of disaster relief. They want to be, and they are. And um, they interact with other institutions in ways that should be attended to. I think these should be on the radar. That brings me to the second thing, which is the way in which all nature of institutions and stakeholders are beginning to create different ecosystems of, of behaving. So one of those, which the Army is well aware of and Futures Command takes, takes account of, is the private sector's role in acquisition or the private sector's role in technology development. I think there's a lot to say there about the power of those institutions. The Army is not simply acquiring things from companies that will then sell it to them, but you know that very well. Um, But the interactions between employees, companies, consumers, and government agencies and militaries, even though those may sound far from from a battlefield that's recognized, are shifting and changing all the time. And they are probably worth keeping on the radar as well. I think that's a very good point, especially when... You kind of consider that a lot of times we go to war, um, speaking still in the conflict terms, but uh, when we go to war, we go to war in in the ways in which the economy manifests a lot of times. So you see the character of um, the Civil War based on initial industry, um, and you see the character of World War II as a mechanization. The, the economy and the world was mechanizing and this use of um, going to a petrol economy. So do we go to war as an as a Amazon ecosystem? I mean, it's, um, I think that's a very interesting point. I want to expand a little bit. You kind of talked about it before. When we talk about marrying strategy um, and and for or excuse me strategy and forecasting, and you talked about this for, can you expand on that just a little bit? Strategy traditionally, whether it's for a company or it's or it's for I mean the companies got it from the military in the first place, was about looking over a demarcated field and deciding what needs to be done, figuring out what resources you had on hand and fulfilling them. We, um, everybody is pretty clear on the fact that change these days um, and success are not linear. So it's, so it's difficult um, in many instances to look backwards and say, okay, we saw linear change last year. Let's continue our behavior or let's alter it in order to continue our trajectory. The key to marrying foresight or forecasting and strategy is making that monitoring process that we already talked about, being attuned to changes in the world, a continuous process, a continual process, and keeping it tied clearly to strategic decision-making. What that requires of an organization is agility, and agility can't just be a word then. It requires the ability to actually make shifts in process, make shifts in the way that um, 
the agency or the organization operates um, and to make maybe different investments. That's really hard for for the Army, I, I grant you. Um, but but that is what marrying them looks like. It looks like keeping both the very long term in mind, keeping what does success look like for the U.S. military in mind, while acting in a more um, in a more iterative or short term way, um, as opposed to deciding on some medium term horizon like twenty, you know, ten years, whatever it looks like, and acting toward it. If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think, um, based on, you know, kind of what you were talking about previously with your grandmother and the idea of, you know, tying a narrative to that future, do you think that plays a role in, in the idea of strategy and, and um, foresight? Very much so. Absolutely. In this way. First, in order to even have a narrative that's going to work, in order to get the people who are stakeholders, which in this place case is citizens, um, and the million-plus employees of the Army and possibly allies, right? Big stakeholder set in this case. Um, there needs to be some kind of compelling aspiration. There has to be, you can call it a quest if you like. It's not the one that's reached. It's not an objective. It's not an acquisition. It's a vision. It's where are we always going. But the story part, um, that's very disjointed if you start from today and you just say, well, now we're going to go toward this great aspirational vision of what does it mean to be an American or mean to be a member of the, or a participant or a stakeholder in the Army today. That is a pivot. It's a change. It's complicated. So it's important to find some continuity. In what way has the Army always been heading toward this aspiration? And what is it doing today that um, signals that it's heading in that direction? Again, to make myself less popular, I think that the, the military can be very hamstrung by the story that the nature of war never changes. It is puzzling to me, who has always been a civilian, so I understand that this is a, an important point for people who are raised um, and educated in the military, but Clausewitz was a historical figure who made a point in time about war as he saw it, and he happened to use the term, you know, enduring nature. But for me, a civilian onlooker, but also a deep, deeply engaged for the last 15 plus years, um, this is a strange claim. Why is this one point a historical? Wouldn't it be useful to think about the many ways in which what war, or today you are talking about competition, what conflict have looked like or could look like, or the metaphors we use for them, wouldn't we want to think about different pasts so that we are not, so that we can think about different futures? I think that's an intriguing point, and it's a, I, I could tell you it's a conversation that comes up a lot um, in Army strategy and futurist circles is, you know, na nature versus character of war. And, um, one of the assumptions that we're trying to challenge in mad scientists is that that assumption that the nature of war will not change. Um, what if, what if war is no longer humanistic or um, entirely human related, or is not completely wed to uh, fear, honor, and interest? So, what what does that look like um, if the nature of war changes? I think that's a great point. Um, you know, we're we're a future-based organization, and you're a futurist, and so we're talking about the future a lot. But 
it's not necessarily going to be us uh, alone who are shaping the future. So you're going to be able to talk to a lot of young people right now. You know, I have I have a son who's eight going on nine. What advice do you want to give to those kind of young people about becoming a futurist or at least how, how they should think about or want to think about the future? Why would they want to work in this field? I think everyone should be working in this field, regardless of what your job is, regardless of where you go work in a company, in the government, in the army, for yourself, as an artist. It's a good time for everyone to have this mindset um, and a particular set of skills. Um, that help people combine deep looking at what's changing, right? An understanding of change. Taking their own observations about what they see emerging in the world seriously and taking the observations of others seriously. And imagination and bringing them into whatever institutions they're in. Um, We very much need leadership with foresight. I think that is becoming patently clear in the world. Um, And so my advice would be, if you can get an education in the the content and the skill sets of futurists, that is great. Please do it. I teach here at Georgetown where we offer a course. Um, There are others available. Um, This is a good skill set to have wherever you're going because you can expect the world to keep changing and for emergence and complexity to be ongoing issues for you. But it doesn't matter what your job title is. It's not a secret that the term futurist is kind of made up in the first place. The point is to have those skills. Um, So I just want to transition real quick uh, to what we call our rapid fire questions, but take your time. Um, But we ask these questions of all our guests. So what technology or trend keeps you up at night? The microchipping of vulnerable humans. I don't see this discussion anywhere. Um, It may be somewhere. But, um, I mean, microchipping is interesting. It basically turns people into mini clouds, right? We're connected to information. You can put your bank information on there. You can put your, I mean, okay, lightheartedly, you can put your gym stuff. But you can put a lot of valuable information onto that chip. And so I am actually concerned about turning people involuntarily into mules um, or using children um, or other basically human bodies that cannot defend themselves as vehicles for conveying information or using them as hostages or a wide variety of um, not very nice scenarios have occurred to me. Um, So that's my fear, is microchipping vulnerable bodies. That is a completely unique answer. We have not gotten that so far. What is something that you're willing to share on air uh, about you that most people might not know? I'm very happy to announce that I was born in Nigeria. Um, I guess most people don't know that. Um, My parents were in the Peace Corps in the late 60s, so I also just announced my age. Yeah, it's a piece of cocktail chatter because I wasn't there long, but it is on my... (laughs) passport and I get a lot of weird looks in airports. (laughs) That's fascinating. Um, And finally, what is your favorite movie? This was the hardest question you've asked today. We get that a lot. I don't like this question. (laughs) Um, Okay, but I figured out that um, Spy, the one with Melissa McCarthy in it, is possibly the best movie of the 21st century, if not all time. If you haven't seen it, you really have to see it. Was it the plot? Was it the humor? What did it for you? It was Melissa McCarthy's, you know, (laughs) awesome, awesomeness as as an undercover agent, I think. I love it. That's such a great answer. Um, So I really appreciate you coming on today. It's been such a fascinating conversation. And where can people follow you at? 
You can find me on LinkedIn under my name, uh, or you can find my company's website at prescient, P-R-E-S-C-I-E-N-T, 2050.com. So prescient2050.com. Amy, thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to The Convergence. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Amy Zalman, futurist and founder of Prescient LLC. You can connect with Mad Scientist through Twitter at ArmyMadSci. And don't forget to subscribe to our blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil.